Let's jump right into things today. If you have your Bible, turn with me. We're in Psalm 2. And here's what I want to do. I'm going to read Psalm 2 in its entirety. And as I do so, my, my desire is just for you to listen and begin to meditate on this word and begin to allow God to work in, in you and begin to, to uh, instruct you on this psalm. And then what we're going to do is come back and I want to look at two questions that, that come out of this text and two answers. So Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The, anoint, the, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree, he said to me. You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son, or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Bless are all who take refuge in him. Listen, I don't know about you, but when I read Psalm 2, I'm just flooded with a variety of different emotions as I read that. In particular, one of the first things that hits me as I, as I read that psalm is just how much I see of what's being the psalmist is, is talking about there and lamenting about there going on in our own culture. Is one of the first questions that the psalmist raises. Is why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? Why, why do people conspire against God? Have you ever found yourself wrestling with that question? Have you ever found yourself just wondering, man, what, you know, is there anything left in our culture today that we can divorce God from? And one of the things I think about as I read a psalm like that is it's a good reminder for you and I to, to remember that, that this isn't something new. This is something that's been going on for a long time. We, we live in a broken world that has been conspiring against God for a long time, has been divorcing itself from God, but yet it does feel like we're in this place as a culture right now, doesn't it, where it's like, man, is there anything left to divorce God from? We've divorced God from our schools, We've divorced God from our places of work. We've divorced God from our politics. We've divorced God from our sexuality. We've divorced God from our marriage. We've divorced God from our religion. We've even divorced God from our lives. We've divorced God from everything. And one of the questions that, that really comes from that, doesn't it? You know, why do the nations conspire against God? And the answer that we see the psalmist responding with in verse three is because they don't trust God. Look at, look, look at what he says here. Let, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. Why do the nations conspire against God? The nations don't trust God. They see religion. They see God as something that enslaves you. It's something that you should be freed from. It's something that you shouldn't go to. Man, I, I, I don't know about you, but this is something I see in our culture so often. And in fact, this summer, 
was a powerful reminder for me of the, the ethos of our culture this, to, today and what's going on. Uh, as some of you know, I'm, I'm in the process of finishing my PhD at Aberdeen. And part of the PhD process is to present on your work. And so this summer, I was invited to present at Cambridge University and the World Congress in Switzerland in the philosophy of law. And, and, and as I went, the way Europe works is you present for 20 minutes and you put forward your thesis, and then you have 45 minutes to kind of stand your ground and to engage in Q&A. And, and one of the things, by the way, if I could just encourage you, one of the things that has just so encouraged me in my studies is I am so incredibly thankful to be a Christian. I am so incredibly thankful for what we have in Jesus and how it is able to stand up to the toughest criticism. And I gotta tell you, I left Cambridge in the World Congress with my head held high and so thankful for the gospel. But it was also a reminder of how our culture perceives the gospel. You see, when I was presenting at these conferences, the topic that I was addressing was the topic of human dignity. And in particular, I was speaking on the topic of human dignity from the Christian viewpoint, from the Christian perspective. And so during my Q&A at, at Cambridge, it was interesting because the first question that I received was from this lady that was upset with me, indignant, like, how dare you bring God into the conversation? And which was ironic because this conference was, was celebrating the work of Michael Polanyi, and, and I brought it to her attention. I said, well, you know that Michael Polanyi brings God into the conversation, and more than that, brings the Christian God into the conversation, which, by the way, the Christian God is like the worst, because the Christian God is a personal God who tells you how you should and shouldn't live your lives, right? Like, that's fighting words in our culture today. And you know what she said to me? I thought this was so interesting. She goes, yes, yes, Andy, but that was then, and this is now. And that's very much the idea of our culture today. Listen, there once was a day back then when we believed that religious stuff and we were enslaved to those superstitious ideas. But we know better now. We've become wiser and we've, we've unshackled ourselves from that religious stuff and now we're free. How dare you bring us back into that slavery of religion. When I was at the World Congress, I began to see an, another aspect of our culture as a professor of law from Quebec took the stage. And as he began to present, I was surprised that as he began to present on antinomianism. Now, in theology, we're used to that term antinomianism. It's two Greek words, uh, against law, and it's this idea that sprung up in the Reformation of lawlessness, right? It was this idea, right? Well, if I become a Christian and God forgives me and I can then do whatever I want, right? Can, can I just live however I want? Can I become a law to myself kind of thing? But, but the speaker made sure that we understood he wasn't talking about the theological idea of antinomianism. He was talking about the philosophical kind, and then he proceeded to argue for lawlessness and began to argue that you and I should be a law unto ourselves and we should be allowed to do as we please. And then he said this, I quote, he says, I don't want to be God's lackey, he says. And that, that very much is the ethos of what we see here, right? Why, why have the nations conspired against God? Because the nations don't trust God. We don't trust God. 
and we find ourselves conspiring and we have these ideas that we are enslaved. Now, one of the things that I want to point out that is so critical in this conversation is that the, the root of rebellion, the, re- the root of conspiring against God is distrust. And distrust develops when you begin to call in qu- into question the character of the lawgiver. And I want to show you how this works because this is so helpful for us to understand as we place our trust in God. And it's important as, if you have your Bible, flip with me over to Genesis chapter three. It's important to remember, again, this isn't something new. This is something that goes back all the way to the beginning. It's people have conspired against God. In Genesis chapter three, and I'm gonna be starting in verse one, though I'm gonna start about halfway into it. What we find is that God has created the universe. God's created life. God has created relationship. And here we have Adam and Eve living in right relationship with God and right relationship with one another, and it's good. It's paradise. Now, I I just want to pause here for a moment and just make a comment before we jump into this. Because I've noticed a lot of Christians are, are getting this confused as our culture has begun to put its hope and trust more and more into technology, and really technology today has become a religion. Now, I'm not saying that because I'm anti-technology, but it's important for us to understand because I've seen how it's kind of skewed our understanding of what paradise is. See, because these days when technology is talked of, it's often talked of with very religious terms such as, you know, through technology, we have the hope that the blind will receive sight, the lame will walk, the deaf will hear, and the dead will be raised to life. And Google tells us, listen, just continue to trust in us because one day when we build the cloud enough, you'll even be able to upload your consciousness, right, to the cloud, and then you can live forever. But you and I need to remember, like, the Bible says that's not paradise, that's hell, like, That's not a good thing because the fundamental problem that you and I have isn't eternal life. The fundamental problem that we have is broken relationship. The paradise is right relationship, eternally right relationship. That's what we're after. But it's important then when we see here in Genesis that what's being lost is that good relationship and why it's being lost. As the serpent comes and begins to have a conversation with Adam and Eve, And we're told Adam and Eve are together, but the serpent is beginning to engage with Eve and Eve with the serpent. And we read, as the serpent talks to Eve, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now Eve clues into this that he doesn't have it quite right, so she corrects him, but makes her own error. She says, no, 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 we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, But God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. Now one thing I think is interesting about this, and I know a lot of us have often thought, at least I have, God, why did you put that tree in the garden, right? What's up with that tree that you could eat from all of them but you can't eat from that one? Listen, that's an important tree. One of the things that that tree is indicating to you and I is that this isn't some sort of robotic relationship that Adam and Eve have with God. This is a real relationship, and real relationships are built on trust. You can either choose to trust God or not. But one of the problems that we immediately see here as Eve is engaging with the serpent is she's beginning to lose sight of who God is. In particular, she's beginning to lose sight of the 
of, of a God of love, and that's being replaced by a God of law. It's legalism. Right? If God says, listen, don't, don't eat that fruit, but, but if I have this view that God is a God of law, then I got to make sure that I follow as many laws as I can and as much as I can because the more law I follow, not, not only am I not going to eat it, I'm not even going to touch it, then the happier I can meet God. I'm gonna, it's going to be better for our relationship because it's a God of law. See, one of the things that you and I need to understand and remember, that God is a God of love. And yes, God has laws, but God's law follows from his love, not the other way around. That's what leads to legalism. And, and to be totally honest with you, when I first became a Christian, uh, that, that's exactly the trap that I fell in. I fell into the trap of legalism because I had this idea, you know, before I was a Christian, I was a law to myself. I was lawless. I did as I pleased. And one of the things that I did is I abused alcohol. So I had this idea, well, that when I became a Christian, now I was becoming a rule follower, right? And so then I wanted to do as much rule following as possible because that would make God happy. And so one of the rules that I, that I started to follow as I, as, I, as I pendulum swung, right, to abusing alcohol, to over here, where not only did I not drink alcohol, I wouldn't even touch alcohol. And in fact, I became quite the Pharisee. These days, I, I, right, I refer to myself back then as I was the high priest, man, because I'd look down my nose at all those other people who didn't follow all the rules that I followed because I was just a little bit better than you. And by the way, my roommate hated me for this. He hated me so much for this that, that he would go and buy beer and just put it in our fridge just to bug me. <laughs> then he put it near the food just so I'd almost touch it, right? Like, he knew just how to, put, how to push my buttons. And one, one of my favorites, though, that he did to me, I can laugh about this now because God's done some work in me. But one of my favorites I called the Trojan Bagel. One day, he decided to skip class so that he could work on his culinary skills and he made some bagels, and I come home from class, and I smell these wonderful bagels, and he asks me if I want one. I'm like, yeah, and I'm, I'm eating one of these fresh bagels, and the smile creeps up on his face as he asks, do you like it? I'm like, yeah, these are really good bagels. And then he asks, do you want to know what's in it? Now listen, right? Church, if you have a friend who tells you, do you want to know what's in something you're eating? You stop eating, right? Like I got half a bagel hanging out of my mouth. I'm like, yeah. I want to know what's in there. And he starts howling, laughing, telling me, those are beer bagels, Andy. I made them with beer. God bless him. Lord had to do some work in me, church. But listen, it could be easy to pendulum swing, isn't it, from legalism over to lawlessness. And here what we find is rooting ourselves in the character of who God is. He's a God of love. But here Eve is beginning to question that. Notice what the serpent does now is the serpent really hones in on the character of God and begins to twist and distort and gets them to question. As the serpent begins to engage with Eve again, he says, you will certainly, you will not certainly die, he says. Think about that for a moment. God doesn't really know what he's talking about. God isn't really wise. He's not that smart. You won't certainly die, calling into question the wisdom of God, and then continues by, by going right to the heart of who God is. For God knows when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. You see Eve and Adam, God's holding out on you. He's not really that wise, and more than that, he's actually not very good either. You see, he just wants to keep all of this for himself. 
And notice how that root of distrust begins to grow. And as we read the story, what we read is that Adam and Eve look over at that fruit and they say to themselves, you know, that fruit looks pretty good. It looks good to the eyes. And more than that, it has wisdom, and I want that wisdom. I want that kind of life. I want a better life, don't you? A life of flirt. I want, the, I want to experience the best. So they take the fruit and they eat. It, if you and I were to be honest, this is why I think this is such a powerful psalm. When we talk about this question, you know, why do the nations conspire against God? Answer, well, the nations don't trust God. But the, but the next question that just logically follows from that and that you see the psalmist addressing is, what about you? Why should I trust God? And we see this as the psalmist writes in verse 11. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Well, well why should I do that? Why should I serve the Lord? Why should I follow his laws? That, that's an important question that you and I have to wrestle with because, again, if we were to be honest with ourselves, there are fruit that you and I have been looking at in our lives that we go, that looks good. And maybe, maybe God doesn't know what he's talking about and maybe he is holding out on me and maybe that would lead to a better life for me. So I think uh, uh, about this question, why, why should I trust the Lord? Um, I'm reminded that where we need to go as we think about that question is, is what, what, who do I mean by the Lord? What, what do I mean by God? I mean, what, kind, what is the character of God? What, what, what do I know about this God? I mean, is he trustworthy? One of the things I, I appreciate about the Apostle Paul is, is he refers to the, who God is. He, one of the things he does there in Colossians with the church in Colossae, he says in Colossians 1.15, if you want to know what God looks like, he says, look at Jesus. He says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter uh, 1, verse 3 says, and I like how the Greek puts it, that Jesus is the exact copy of God. You, you want to know what the character of God looks like? Look at Jesus. That's what God looks like. You see, the reality is, is that it's the same God in the Old Testament from the New Testament, but you have a God in the Old Testament who is working through broken people. And in particular, as we look at this psalm, is working through broken kings in the Davidic line, kings that did not always love. They weren't always wise. They weren't always good. And the truth is that there was an anointed that God was raising up that, he, that, that God knew we needed. His son, a good king that was loving, that was wise, and is good. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul picks up on in Acts chapter 13. So if you got your Bible, flip with me over there to Acts chapter 13. In Acts chapter 13, what we find is the Apostle Paul on his missionary journeys, and he finds himself in a synagogue that has Jews and Gentiles. And at the end of this, they ask, you know, has anybody got a word from the Lord? And the Apostle Paul's like, I got a word from the Lord. And they go, you know, go ahead, tell us that word from the Lord. And Paul begins to tell them the gospel. Paul begins to tell them the good news of Jesus. And when we look at the gospel, when we look at the good news of Jesus, we see the character of God made abundantly clear. You want to know what God looks like? Here, here's what God looks like. God loves you so much that he humbled himself, took on the form of a servant, 
and he lived and died for you. Jesus said in John chapter 15 that there is no greater love than to lay down your life for a friend, and he said, you are my friend. Jesus died for you on a cross, a shameful death, and there he is being murdered, and does he... Does he rebuke? No, he prays out and says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. I'm telling you, if that that doesn't show you the character of God, in the midst of being killed, he forgives. We see the love of God. But then as we look at the gospel, we see more than just the love of God, we see the wisdom of God. Um, God, in his wisdom, And in our brokenness, God doesn't seek to break his law. He doesn't seek to circumvent his law. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, he says, listen, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. We see the wisdom of God in Jesus there on the cross that, that our sin, our evil, our brokenness that separates us from God is is put on Jesus, and Jesus takes our punishment on himself, and three days later rises, raises to life, defeating death and evil. The wisdom of God is that he could do what you and I never could. And, and, and it's in that that we see the goodness of God. It's, it's how does he treat us in return after he defeats sin and evil, our brokenness, our, our rebellion? As he extends to us grace, and forgiveness, that through Jesus we can place our trust in him and that relationship with God can be restored and you and I through him and through the working of God in our lives through the Holy Spirit, we can begin to mend those broken relationships in our life. And this is what the Apostle Paul does. He gives them the gospel in Acts chapter 13 and then look at what he says here in verse 32. As he says, we tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, going all the way back to the beginning, God knew what he was doing, right? He was working through all of this. He has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus as it is written in the second psalm. It's written in Psalm 2. See, he saw, this is what God's been doing. This is, this is about much more than, than the nations. And he says, you are my son, today I become your father. God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. As God has said, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. God has given us his son, Jesus. And it's in him that we see the character of God. My, my challenge to you in the midst of this is that you and I it can become quite discouraged when we see what's going on in the world today, can't we? When you and I see a nation that conspires against God, when we see a nation that continually divorces itself from God, when you and I see just a broken world that is living in the mess of a rebellion that does not trust God. It can be discouraging when you and I see in the news that yet another mass shooting was happening in the U.S., but of course it's not just in the U.S., right? Right? We had a mass shooting in Toronto. Things are happening in Canada and it's easy to get frustrated and, we, and sometimes forget that God is in control. He knows what's going on. He has been actively involved from the beginning through his son. And it's a reminder to us to place our trust in him. But I understand it can be difficult at times when we see the challenges that we face and we see what's going on with our friends and family and as we watch as people don't trust him and as people walk away from their faith. 
This was a challenge to me just this last week as I saw on the news that Joshua Harris, pastor that wrote a book called I Kiss Dating Goodbye, guy I just talked to last year at Regent that was doing well and was heading back into ministry, sadly announced that he's kissing his faith goodbye and he's kissing his marriage of 20 years goodbye. And listen, I don't know about you, but my heart breaks for him and his family and his children. And I, and, and I pray for them, and, and, and I pray for him, and, and, and my desire is that he would place his trust in Jesus, that he would follow him, because you and I understand that when, listen, when you become a law unto yourself and you go in your own path, seen over and over again as a pastor how it just leads to self-destruction. When we look at this question, why should I trust God? Why should I trust him? Because he's good. Because he's wise. Because he's loving. And what we see the psalmist saying in the last a sentence of that psalm, right? The last verse. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Why should you place your trust in God? Because it leads to your flourishing. It leads to your good. You understand how that works, right? If, if, if you have a person who gives you a law and you want to know whether or not the character of that lawgiver is good, it would be wise of you to follow them. If you come to the conclusion that somebody loves you, that somebody's wise, and that somebody's good, you would be a fool not to follow them. And what we see in in Jesus is is Jesus saying, listen, follow me. You you can trust me. As a a young adult pastor, I do a lot of weddings here. And, you know, often when I'm uh, officiating a wedding, I'm thinking, you know, what kind of advice can I I give to this young couple? And and just last week, I, I, I had a, or two weeks ago, I had a wedding that I did, and, and uh, the groom is a, is a builder. And so I wanted to give him an analogy that, that he could understand. And I said, you know, Jesus gives a great analogy in Matthew chapter seven. And he, and he talks about how you're, gonna, how you're gonna build a house in the way that you would build a life. And Jesus asked, listen, what would a wise person do? Would you build a house on a weak foundation? Would you build a house on sand? He's like, well, of course not, because when the storms of life come, it's gonna tear that house down. It's gonna tear down that life. And in other words, Jesus is saying, listen, you need to build your house on a solid foundation. You need to build your house on a rock, right? We would say bedrock. Because then when the storms come, you'll be able to weather those storms of life. And Jesus says, listen, is you're building my, sorry, is you're building your life. Build your life on me. I am a solid foundation for you. And I just want to tease that out for a moment here. Because I think sometimes we'll hear something like that and it kind of just passes us by. I, I want to I maybe ground that for you in a way that maybe you haven't thought of it before. You see, as a Christian, a Christ follower, when I build my life on Jesus, when he's my solid rock, my foundation, it means that I am trusting in God's character demonstrated for me in the person of Jesus Christ that God does love me, that God is wise and he is good so that when life's storms do come, and listen, church, they will come. In the, in the first service, I had a lovely lady come to me in tears telling me that her husband died last year. She's feeling that storm of life. And I know that there are many of you that have had different storms. Maybe you've lost your job. Maybe, maybe you're in a storm where you're thinking about leaving your spouse. I'm telling you, when you experience a storm of life, It's going to rock your foundation. It's going to get you to question that foundation. Do I really believe that God is a God of love? Does he love me? 
Do I really believe that he's wise? Is he looking out for my well-being? Is he really under control in this? Is he good? You see, when we build our lives on Jesus, it's a reminder that it is a solid foundation that he is all those things. He does love you, he is wise, and he is good. Last year, uh, my in-laws celebrated 50 years of marriage. And uh, it's, been, it's been such a blessing to see them follow the Lord diligently and trust him, not only in their lives, but in their marriage. And I thought it was so fitting that as they celebrated 50 years of marriage, the verse that they commemorated that with was Proverbs 3, 5 to 6. And I think this is fitting for us to end today. Trust in the Lord, church, with all your heart. And lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways, submit to him, and he will make your path straight. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, I am so thankful for your son, Jesus. I'm so thankful that we see your character displayed for us so vividly that you love us, that you're wise, and that you're good. And Jesus, I know that each one of us are in our own storm. We've got our own fruit that looks good, and we have these own, our own ideas of maybe we should follow our own ways, but God, I just pray, pray that we would trust you. I pray that we would rest in that foundation that we have set in you as we have built our lives, and that God, as those storms come, that we would rely on the character of who you are, knowing that you are leading us to our good and to our flourishing, I pray, in your power and to your glory, amen.